Thank you all for joining. Today we are going to begin to study the final verses of Psalm 119. We are more than 80 classes into this extraordinary and very unique chapter of Tehillim, the longest chapter of Tehillim. Today we're beginning to study the verses, the psukim, that correspond to the Hebrew letter Tuf, the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I'm glad you're joining today. If you aren't yet, please subscribe and hit notifications. We are going to be uncovering what I think is maybe one of the greatest secrets about King David. I'm going to be uncovering his deepest, most heartfelt yearning. Today you will discover what David HaMelech really wanted. What was his ultimate goal? What was his highest level of achievement or fulfillment? And how would that make a difference to us? What we learned today is really something that can uplift and I think can transform our lives. But instead of talking about it, let's, let's take a look and say for Tehillim, let's begin to learn together. And please stay with me, because what we are about to uncover today is simply astounding. Astounding. Now, in fairness, before we begin to actually read the verses of Tehillim, I think that we would be wise to begin with a small preface about the Hebrew letter Tuf. This is something we've done on a fairly regular basis as we moved our way through the letters of the alphabet. And I have found that especially, it's especially important because the first verses usually will jibe with the meaning attributed to a letter of the Aleph base. As, as you might remember from many of our previous classes, there's this fascinating Gemara in Masechet Shabbat. It's found on page 104, and it speaks about the wisdom of Jerusalem's school children, the way they were able to expound the deeper meaning of Hebrew letters, the messages contained within the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. And we've learned from Aleph, and now we arrive at Tuf. Now, we did mention something about this when we opened the letters of Shin, because the Gemara links the letter Shin and the letter Tuf. As we learned, the Gemara says that Shin, the second to the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, is indicative of Sheker, a falsity. And the letter Tuf relates to the notion of emet, the absolute truth. The Gemara then queried, why is it that the letters of Sheker, Shin, Kuf, and Resh are together in the Hebrew alphabet? In the order, we have Kuf, Resh, and then Shin. But they are the only letters that are in quick succession, spelling out a motif 
of one of the Hebrew letters of the alphabet. Whereas the very next letter representing the polar opposite of falsehood, namely truth, the letters are merachaka mili. The letters are very distant from one another. And the Gemara's answer was, and I quote from the Gemara, Daf Kuf Dalad, Amadalaf, Sechet Shabbat, page 104, side A. The Gemara says, Shikra Shchiach, because falsity is easy to come by. It's common. Kushta, the truth, Leishchiach, isn't nearly as commonplace. As the Maharal of Prague put it, most of what you say in defining something won't really be the absolute truth. He says, if you will call a person a beast or an animal, it's not really true. Well, it certainly isn't an absolute definition, although a person does share commonality with animals. If you say that a person is a conglomeration of physicality, much like wood, well, it's not entirely untrue. There is a commonality between the nuclear physics of wood and that of a person. If you even were to say that humanity not only is, is not an, only an animal, but it's even identified as vegetation like wood or even with the mineral world. After all, our bones are like stone. They don't really grow per se, certainly not like vegetation. He said all of that would be a lie. All of that would be a lie because none of that's really true. That's not the exclusive definition. And non-exclusive definitions are necessarily misrepresentations. So a person is neither mineral nor vegetation nor animal. A person is a person. And there's something very unique about humanity, at least from a Torah perspective. The emes, the truth, says the Maharal, is very precise. And it's distant from everything else. As they say, you only get one truth. Because absolute truth is singular. And so the Gemara says that's why its letters are spread apart, because the truth is far and few in between. The Gemara now asks, And why is it that the lies or the letters that create falsity seem to rest on one leg? An emet, melabein labune, and yet we have the notion of the words emet, spelling out emet, resting on, proverbially speaking, two feet. So shin, as the Ramban and the Rashba point out from this very Gemara, in the Sefer Torah, not the way it often is in print, but in a Sefer Torah shin, will come to a point. And this is actually the proof that the shin must come to the point because the shin comes to a point. The kuf stands on one leg, of course, and the resh only has one side or one leg. Whereas the letter emet has a, a body of the aleph that is, so to speak, resting on the bottom on the right, and it's got a leg on the left. Mem has a wide body and then a small leg on the left. So it's got a wide base and a small leg. That's two feet, so to speak. 
And of course, the letter Tuf has got a foot on the right and a foot on the left. So we have this difference where the letters that spell falsity are balanced on one leg, whereas the Hebrew letters that comprise truth are balanced on two, or I should say, well-footed. So the Gemara says that uh, if you want to know why this is the case, it's because kushta koi, because the truth lasts. Shikra koi. Lies do not have, falsity does not have an eternity attached to it. The truth will always be the truth. <laughs> the lie, that's what's convenient for today. Things that aren't true are always changing. The notion that something is in style and therefore beautiful is actually ridiculous. If it's intrinsically beautiful, it wouldn't make a difference what style or how the times are shifting. Because real beauty is timeless and ageless. And so it is with just about everything else. And so the notion of truth is well-founded, whereas lies are not. Now the Gemara leaves us with this, although it is interesting to point out that when it comes to the notion of Sheker, it's the first, the first letter. Sheker, Shin stands for Sheker. When it comes to tough, it's the last letter. And the reason that's given for this, as per the Ben Yehoyada, who elaborates a statement in the Zohar, that's because the lies always sell well in the beginning. They're always popular, per se. But in the end, there's nothing left. The truth isn't particularly popular for the most part. It doesn't catch on easily, but it does last. And this idea is spelled out later on in the Gemara in Mesechet Shabbos on page 55, but we'll get to that in a moment. The point, of course, that I'm making here is that the letter Tuf is connected to the truth. In the Medrash known as Otiot Rabbi Akiva, there we find the letter Tuf associated with the concept of To'av, or taiva, craving or desire. Rabbi Avram Chaim Fuhr suggests that the, there's a natural link between emet and this desire. He says because the person who desires the ultimate in life, which is relationship with God, will always be looking for the truth. I'm not talking about lusts cravings and desires for things evanescent and passing. Speak here of one who yearns, craves, and desires the ultimate truth. And our desire should be for the ultimate truth. Because if you're looking for the truth, you'll always come home to God. We know that because the Gemara in Masechus Shabbos on page 55 talks to us about an awful situation that was unfolding during the end of the first temple era. The prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel, is in Babylon. Most of his prophecies are directed towards the Jews dispersed, already exiled. Yet, here, Hashem gives Ezekiel, Yechezkel, a journey, if you will, and blowing him all the way to Yerushalayim, takes him around the Beis HaMikdash, shows him various things, and then gives him 
the most baleful prophecies for the inhabitants of the holy city. And the Pasuk, the verse over there, speaks about the notion of marked, the people being marked. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, and I quote, Vayoyimer Hashem Elov, God said to him, to Yechezkel Hanovi, Avor Besechoir Besechirushalayim, go through the city, go through Jerusalem. Visa Tof Al you will mark the foreheads of people with a tough. These are the people who are Ne'enochim, Ve'ne'enochim, the people who are groaning, choking, crying in pain, over all of the abominable behavior unfolding before them. These are the people that will be saved. And they're marked with a tough. And the Gemara goes on to talk about the difference between the wicked, who are also marked, funny enough, with a tough. One is marked in ink, one is marked in blood. This is beyond the purview of our conversation today, of our, of our lesson, of our learning. But what I do want to direct you to is to the conclusion of the Gemara, where the Gemara says, why tough? Why was that the mark? And the Gemara tells us that the reason, the Gemara gives us a number of different reasons. But then the Gemara says that tough Tuf represents the ultimate sign or seal of God. The Omer Rabbi Hanina, for Rabbi Hanina taught, The mark or seal of God is truth. And Rashi says that the letters Aleph, Mem, and Tuf represent the middle, first, and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You have an Aleph, that starts the word emet. You have a mem, which is smack in the middle, and then a tuf, which concludes the Hebrew letters of the alphabet. And so, as per we learned, the notion of tuf, it ends with the truth. What I mean to demonstrate here is that we are going to be hearing about David Melech. Look for the ultimate truth. It's the ultimate truth that King David sought. What does that mean? What does it look like when you yearn for the ultimate truth? What is the ultimate truth? Were King David's prayers answered? Does that make a difference for you and for me? Maybe we aren't really looking for the truth. Do we really care about the ultimate truth? Those are good questions. And I hope with Hashem's help to be able to answer them today. And so with this little preamble, we are now going to see how in the final collection of verses, David Melech opens by expressing his deepest, most heartfelt yearning to draw close to Hashem through his rina, through his song and his cries, his prayerful entreaty in which he seeks the truth. For David King David is the ultimate seeker of truth. Let's begin the journey. Kapitel Kufiu Tes, Psalm 119. Pasa Samach Tes, verse 169. David Melech says, 
Tikrav Rinati. May my supplication, my prayer, draw close lefonecha before you, Hashem, O God. Kidvarcha Havineni. Grant me understanding in accordance with your word. Sounds very poetic. Sweet. David HaMelech wants his prayers to come before God. Who wouldn't want their prayers to go before God? After all, who are you praying for? And he wants to know. He wants to understand in accordance with God's word. Sounds like a typical spiritual seeker. If you want to be close to God, you want to understand God's word. Sounds like a pretty open and shut case. It really isn't. Let's contemplate this for a moment. Let's think about these words carefully. Here in Psalm 119, King David has not asked once for his players to come close to God. Why suddenly, in verse 169, is he seeking closeness for his prayers? The Ibn Ezra says, Tikrav, this is, he says, Derech Moshel. It's as if, metaphorically speaking, that there's a merchak, that the distance from God is like the distance between heaven and earth. And King David seeks to bridge the unbridgeable. He seeks to reach the very heavens. But all prayers are directed to heaven. So what does David Melech mean when he says, may my prayers draw close? Interestingly, Rashi says nothing. The Mitzudah's David says, Tikrav, Tfilosi, Tikarevelecha, let my prayer come close to you. And what is the prayer? Ah, the prayer is, Shatovinli Hatoira, that I should be able to understand the Torah, Kidvarecha, as per or in accordance with your words. Well, how else would you want to understand the Torah? Rashi comments on the words Kidvarcha, Havineni, the word Havineni being a permutation of the word Havana, which is understand. But here, Davra Melech asks Havineni, make me understand, grant me understanding. So Rashi says, what I seek here, David, is, is saying, he, he wants to understand divrei Torotcha, the words of your Torah. And that they should be understood which is really fancy Hebrew for precisely, exactly what they really mean. So it took King David 169 verses to muster the courage to actually want to really understand the Torah? Really? This is a psalm that is filled with King David's yearning to know and understand the Word of God. How else would we know or understand the Word of God if not for kidvarecho, if not for as per or in accordance with your Word? What else would one be understanding when they study Torah? 
Mitzudas David, completing his comment, says, Ratzaloimar. What David Amelech means to say here is, Kefi amitat kavanat dvarecha. He was seeking to understand the real truth of God's words. But after all, if I'm studying Torah, that's what I'm looking for. I want to understand the truth of God's words. Something's not adding up here. Rabbeinu David Kimchi, the great Sephardic commentator on the entirety of the Bible, Radak says, Tikravrinosi, it's not just a prayer, he says. Tsaakosi, it's a heartfelt, a cry, a piercing cry. Omahi Tsaakosi, what's he crying about? What's he, what's he crying out? What is he yearn for? What does he seek so ardently? That you should give me Bina Vahaskel. You should give me the understanding. You should give me the intelligence to know to do as per your word. Ah, really? David HaMelech wants to know what to do. Don't you? Don't I? We all want to know what to do. We all want to learn the Torah. Every time you ask a Shaila of a Rav, you're asking for precisely that. Tell me what to do. Do you need to cry out to heaven? What is David HaMelech praying for with such fervor? The Radha continues his commentary in the next verse, which I'm going to share with you as well, and we're going to come back to try and understand this. In verse 170, he says, Tovoi schinosi lefanecha, may my supplication, my techina, come before you. Ki hatzileni, save me as per your word. Hmm, save me as per your word. What's he talking about here? So Ibn Ezra says, well, you know, I, I got sorrows, I got, I got problems. So save me, save me because I got problems. But so this David says, you, you promised you were going to save me. You gave me a guarantee through the prophet Nathan, Nassan Anovi, which indicates more of a spiritual saving. Radak says, this is not physical saving. David HaMelech was not shy. When he was worried about his enemies, he talked about them. When he was concerned about those who threatened to overwhelm him, he identified them multiple times in this psalm. We speak not here of salvation, saving of the body or corporeal reality, mitzora, elahatzolas hanefesh. David Amelech seeks to be saved from the stumbling block of sin. Because he doesn't mention, says Radak, anything in this Pasuk or in the Psukim before that speak about an enemy. And he says, Kim Rascha. Where is Kim Rascha? According to Radak, this is not the promise that God makes to David HaMelech specifically through the prophet Nathan, but rather this refers to the notion that Hashem, Almighty God Himself, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Shemir Adam and Hashem promises to save us from sin. As the Pasuk says, So that the awe, the sense of respect 
even the fear of God should be upon us, the built And he says, even though God does provide the gift called freedom or the ability to choose, if a person is only upright, God will help him to follow that way. And that's why God revealed himself to the Jewish people at Sinai. That was what mass revelation was about. It was a mafteach gadol. That was the master key that was given to us. The key to unlocking our hearts. So that we would, we would be inclined towards goodness and righteousness. You know that's not the natural inclination of the heart, right? But you can unlock the heart, says Radak. And he says, when you unlock the heart, the heart itself will want to avoid sin. Radak says, this is the meaning of Moses in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy, when he says, If only their hearts will be directed towards me, says God, to revere me, and therefore, David Amel says, Kim Roscha, in your Torah you promised to save me from sin, so save me from sin. So he wants to know what to do because he wants to be saved from sin. And there seems to be a crossover from verse 169 into verse 170. And I'm asking you, what, what is going on here? Does this not sound like the same old just God? Help me be good. I wanna I wanna learn your Torah. It's almost like you could sum up Psalm 119, 176 verses. God, help me be good. I want you to learn the Torah. What is David Amal saying here? And how does Radak end up taking it into the business of the heart too? Who spoke at a heart, about a heart at all? It's unlocking hearts. And it's like, where does it all come from? Very interestingly, in the Me'iri, he sews this together even more strongly. Seems to follow a very similar path of understanding as Radak. Re'i Meiri says that this letter of Tov begins with Tikra Vrinasi, I'm crying out to you, God. I'm asking that you accept my prayers. And then the Meiri says something very interesting. He immediately goes into the next notion of Kedvar Chavineni and he said, that I should be able to reach I should be able to fulfill my ultimate destiny. There's something penultimate about this statement. David Melch is like, he's gunning for the climax. He wants to fulfill the ultimate, the penultimate purpose. But what's he talking about? And the Me'iri sews this together or really weaves it into verse 170, and therefore I'm asking you to save me from stumbling blocks, to allow me the perfection of being able to achieve my purpose for creation. There seems to be something being said. I'm asking what it is. On the surface, we aren't seeing profundity. 
I really couldn't figure this out, by the way. And then something funny happened. I noticed something which I found on the surface extremely odd in the commentary of Rabbeinu Avadya Sefarno. And it got me thinking. And I'm going to take you on that journey now. And you see if you come to my conclusion. The Sefarno doesn't speak about Rina as crying. He speaks about it more as Seder Shivchacha Hakoidimotvili. He talks about the preamble, the preamble for praying. Okay, so what is the preamble for praying? Well, interestingly enough, in the Sefer Migdash Ma'at, in the anthology known as Beis Knesset, so in verse 170, he goes back to verse 169. And he states in the name of the Chazetzion that this Rina, which is a preamble to prayer, as per the verse found in the sixth chapter of the second book of Divrahayam or Chronicles, Lishmoya El Harina Ve'el Hatvila, who listens to the supplication and the prayer. So the Chazetzion says, that this refers to Trina Shanasis Bishivrain Lev. This is a heartbroken cry. Heartbroken cry. And in the verse before, the Besaknesis anthology quotes the Chazetzian as saying that Rina refers to the concept of literally crying. He says, Rina refers to Bechia. Not just Tzaika, not crying out, but actual weeping before God. He links this to the statement that our sages make, Shari Dima Leininalu. Then even when all other gates of prayer or supplication are closed, the gate of tears is always open. And so David HaMelech was asking for something extraordinary here. And the Chazetzian also seems to link it to Mount Sinai. Revelation. Mass revelation. So I'm, I'm trying to compute these ideas. It's not really prayer we speak of here, but very heartfelt supplication. There was something that was moving King David to tears. There was something that caused him to cry out from the very depths of his soul as he pursued or yearned for the truth. He wants the truth about what God really wants. The real intention of the words of the Torah. And this touches him in a very, very profound way. He's crying out as he looks for the truth. I'm like, why is that so unusual? I mean, why else would you want to study Torah if you didn't learn what God said in His words? I don't want to study Torah so that I can superimpose my ideas of the Torah. That's ridiculous. We study the Torah as a student of the Torah. 
A sage is called a Talmud Chacham, a pupil, a student, perennially. You're always a student. One who approaches the Torah in this arrogant way as if to say, I know, I know what's right and wrong. Now let's see how I can fit the Torah into my way of looking at things. Which is tragically what I find in non-inspired or fervor-filled sections of so-called Judaism today. Jewish people who seek to espouse values of the society in which they live and then say, well, the Torah says it. It's my Torah values that motivate me to get involved in politics or sociological issues, which is not even true because your bias or default is what you've absorbed from the secular world, the Western world. And now you're trying to fit it into the Torah, force it into the words of the Torah. That's terrible stuff. It really is. It's a disgrace. It's a desecration of the holiness of Torah because the Torah is God's word. And it's not the way I or any other human being understands things should be. It's the way God understands and teaches us things should be. And when we approach the Torah, we should do so with the greatest of self-abnegation, the deepest of humility. Please, Hashem, open my heart and my mind. What is your Torah saying? But there's something afoot here, something different about this concluding verse, this final prayers of Psalm 119, where David HaMelech is looking for some kind of truth that isn't just the truth, the absolute truth. He's moved to tears. He's crying. What is he looking for? So the Sephardim goes on to say something which on the surface is shocking. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Like, it doesn't seem to connect to anything that's being discussed here. But the more I thought about it, I began to understand that the Sephardim is actually giving us the ability to unlock the mystery and the secret of these verses. The Sephardim says this, Kidvarcha. Havineni means ka'amorcha, as God says, and this is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, umol Hashem elekecha eslavavcha. God will, proverbially speaking, circumcise your heart. And the Sephono put three dots in the manuscript because that's how it's printed. And there are no three dots anywhere else on these few pages. So I have to guess that Rabbi Avardia Sefarno, in his actual manuscript, put three dots here. The rest of the verse, by the way, is, and in the hearts of your progeny. And he concludes the verse, la'ahava es Hashem elekecha, to love the Lord your God. I'm like, what's going on here? David HaMelech seeks understanding, not love. How did the Sephardim arrive at the conclusion that Kidvarcha Havineni, that helped me understand the truest meaning of your words, 
is actually a request to have love implanted in his heart. Who's talking about emotions? This is about the intellect. This is about understanding the truth. And of course, that can be translated into the emotions and filter into the actions. But we're talking here about knowledge. I'm like, scratching my head. I don't understand. What did this Farno say here? And then I remembered an incredible rumination from the Rebbe on this verse. And I decided to go back to that rumination. And when you see the way the Rebbe explains that Pasuk, all of a sudden everything here became clear. At least to me it did. Let's take a look at that Sikha. Let's see this. So the edited talk is actually found in the 29th volume of and I'm going to give you the synoptic version of it. So this isn't the first time. Deuteronomy 36 is not the first time in which we hear about circumcision of the heart. I know, it sounds rather odd, unless you happen to be familiar with Deuteronomy. You go like, circumcision of the heart. What is that, open heart surgery? What, what exactly is going on here? Circumcision, as we know it, is the removal of an extra piece of skin at the end of the organ that's uniquely male. That's circumcision. But yet, the Torah, not once, but twice, uses that terminology with regard to our heart. And so the Rebbe casts, casts a comparison, a study in comparison between this verse as it shows up in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, which is Parshas Ekev, and the way it shows up in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which is Parshas Nitzavim. So there must be a difference between the two because the Torah doesn't repeat itself. Here are three differences between Parshas Ekev and the Mila Talev, the circumcision of heart, that's found in Parshat Nitzavit. In Parshas Ekev, it's something we're supposed to do. The language of the scripture is, Umaltem es arlat levavchem. You should circumcise the foreskin of your heart. In Parshas Nitzavim, it's not something a person's asked to do. On the contrary, it alludes to something God is supposed to do. Umol, who will circumcise? Hashem Elekecha, the Lord your God. Big difference. In Parshas Ekev, it's an imperative for mankind, humankind, People should circumcise their heart. This is a clarion call to action. In Deuteronomy 30, it's not a call to action on behalf of people. It's recounting actions that will be taken by Hashem. That's a huge difference. One is our mitzvah, 
our sacred duty and responsibility, the other is a gift that we will, in Miritza Hashem, benefit from. The second difference that Ebba says is that the first time around, it says, Umaltem es orlat levavchem. There is mention of a foreskin. Remove the cover. Think of it as a blockage on the heart. I'm sure you've heard people say things like, that person has a heart of stone. Or, their heart is sealed. How do you get through to their heart? How can you stimulate some feelings when they seem to have a veneer of indifference around them? So in Parshas Akev, Hashem says, get rid of the cover, shatter the enamel. In our Parsha, it doesn't say that God will circumcise or remove the cover. It says, Umol Hashem Aleikecha, Es Levavcha, Es Levavcha. He will circumcise the heart. There is no mention of a cover, enamel, shell, or foreskin. The third difference. In Parshas Ekev, we speak only about you. If you're reading the verse, you are the subject. Umaltem es arles levavchem. Do something about your life, would you? Fix things. Make them better. Get yourself in order. In Deuteronomy 30, we don't only hear about you, we hear about your progeny your children and theirs. As it says, your heart, and the heart of your seed. And so the Rebbe explains the difference as per these three differences between the imperative of Parshas Ekev and the promise of Parshas Nitzavim, like this. In Parshas Ekev, in Deuteronomy 10, God is speaking to us. He's tasking us with making ourselves better, with sensitizing ourselves to God, to spirituality, to the value and virtue of the study of Torah, that we should appreciate and exhibit passion in prayer, that we should be sensitive towards the needs of another and fulfilling the mitzvah of loving our fellow like ourself. So Hashem says, don't be unfeeling. Don't be insensitive. Do something about it. But in Parshas, Nitzavim, at the end of Deuteronomy, this verse comes after the Torah ordains the future. And it will come to pass. And all these things will happen to you. A lot of those things are not so pretty. Painful things. Exilic things. Dispersion, disruption, and worse. And then, Vishavto. Then you'll come home 
you'll return ad Hashem Elikecha. After suffering the consequences of the bitter grapes we engendered, we created, then we'll realize that hope and salvation is not to be found within the handiwork of people, but rather only in Hashem. And so, We'll, we'll start to heed or listen to the word of Hashem. The Rebbe says, it finishes with the words, Bechol levavcha uvechol nafshecha with all your heart and with all your soul. Orlas halev? A covering? An enamel? A lack of sensitivity? Not here. Here you're talking about a person who has returned to Hashem with great fervor. Here you're talking about a person who has come home to Hashem. A person who is now passionately involved in his Judaism. With all his heart. With all his soul. This is a situation where we the Jewish people have removed that proverbial foreskin. What then? What then could be expected? If we've taken away the blockage or the cover, if we've sensitized ourselves, what then can follow? Ah, it's good you asked. The Rebbe says what follows is after we do our part, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Almighty, does His part. You see, as the Rebbe elaborates and explains, when there's this spiritual descent and we fell very, very low and people's hearts turned away from Hashem, as it says, lest there be a person, a man, a woman, a family, a tribe, asher whose heart turns away from God. To go and worship alien, foreign, strange deities from other nations. You see, somehow it's the heart. It's a dangerous thing. People say, I just follow my heart. I'm not so sure that's a good idea. Your heart can take you into a whole lot of trouble. When you follow your heart, your heart is filled with lusts and cravings, desires, which could be profoundly unhealthy for you. And so, when a person simply follows their heart, they may well go down the garden path of sin. You know, Rashi puts it earlier in the book of Numbers, in Parsha Shlach, when he speaks about the words, He says, don't go after your eyes and your heart. He says, he says, The eye sees. And then the heart starts to lust and to crave. But that's who we are. Who are we fooling? Our heart is selfish. Our heart is turns on things which we think might be 
enjoyable, beneficial, fun, satisfying, even if in the end they really aren't, but we tend to look for instant gratification. Don't follow your heart, the Torah says. You restrain your heart when it has those unhealthy, toxic lustings and cravings and desires for things unhealthy and unholy. But what's the end game? If you will, what's the eschatology of Judaism sound like? Oh, it sounds like a time in which we no longer will desire those ugly things. Our heart will be re-engineered. That's the meaning of circumcising the heart. This surgery, per se, means that Hashem re-engineers our hearts and emotions so that we'd actually be interested in godliness and goodliness rather than selfishness and toxicity. We actually get re-engineered in the end of time. That's the direction our heart takes us. That's the meaning of Umal Hashem Aleikecha. You and I can't do this on our own. The greatest of tzaddikim can accomplish this. The rest of us, we're always going to be fighting our heart. And that's okay. That's our shlichut. That's our mission. That's what God expects of us. And that's what we yearn for. We yearn to be looking solely for the truth. So my head is working on it, thinking about this idea and how the Rebbe explains this verse, which we see clearly the Sepharna was sending us off to. And then I take a look in the words of the Alshech. And the Alshech, Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech says this. He says, do you know what King David is praying for over here? He's praying for the last moments before he dies. Bo levakesh, says the Alshech in his commentary in Tilim Rebim Moiskel. Bo levakesh, David Melech comes to request al Yisrein das, mechoch Moshe misifun lebeis hasiluk. At the time when body and soul are about to separate, there's a higher consciousness that's granted. David Melech sought that higher consciousness. He says, this is as per the words of our sages, that in the last moments of life, a person sees all the Torah they learned flash before their eyes. And he says, what does the soul of a righteous person like David yearn for? He asks that he should go out at the top, that his last moments of holiness should be in the profoundest awareness of divinity. And that he should experience this when body and soul are still together. Because that is what necessarily presages the future. That's the meaning of David Melech Yisrael Chai V'Kayam. Your life continues as per the last moments. If you left doing tshuva, if you left yearning for Hashem, if you left this world, that's the kind of eternity that you merit. Ki besiluk, besiluki, at the moment you're about to take me, God, David said, then let my cry pierce the heavens and come before you. My rina, says the Alshech, also refers to my Torah. 
He says, Kol Whatever it was that during the course of my lifetime, despite my toil of Torah, I didn't understand. At that moment, Sound familiar? We read that from the Radak, incidentally. Rabbi Yosef Chiyun says the same thing in his commentary. He says, what David HaMelech wants to understand is as it says in the Torah, Umol Hashem Elekecha Eslovavcha. Rabbi Yosef Chiyun also connects it to the notion of the heart being cleansed and cleared. And Rabbi Yosef Chiyun connects this to the notion of the Torah understood at Har Sinai, the clarity of Mount Sinai. So what David HaMelech was yearning for was the ultimate clarity. And he wanted to understand this. Oideni baguf venefesh, when I'm still body and soul together. Be'et hasiluk, in the moments before he would die. Listen to this. David HaMelech is specially connected to Moshe Rabbeinu. We know this. Our sages tell us that the word Adam stands for Adam David Moshe. What happened to Moshe Rabbeinu in his last hour? The very end of the Torah, the seventh reading of the final parsha of Azot HaBracha, it says, Vayal Moshe me'arvas Moav. Moshe now went up from the plains of Moav. He went up El Harnavo. He went up to the top of the summit of the mountain that was facing Yericho. The Magad of Mizrich, as cited in Lakuta Torah, in Parshas Bamidbar, taught the following. We know that the world is created with 50 gates of understanding. Moshe Rabbeinu was given 49. This is alluded to in a verse in the book of Tehillim. In the book of Tehillim, in the 8th Psalm, it is stated... Psalm 8, verse 6. You made him just a little less than the angels. What does this mean, a little less than the angels? So, being made a little less than the angels, according to the Gemara, refers to Moshe Rabbeinu. That's the Gemara Meseches Rosh Hashanah. On page 21, side B, the Gemara says that the notion of Moshe Rabbeinu being, if you will, ill or missing, chesaron, from the term chet, is Moshe Rabbeinu's yearning. And the word chole, sickness, says the Gemara, equals 49. So Moshe Rabbeinu, the Gemara says, he was just beneath the angels because he was able to know of 49 gates, 49 gates of wisdom, not the 50th. Says the Alter Rebbe, quoting the Mizritcher Magid, that on the very last hour of his life, Moshe Rabbeinu was, allude, was given and granted access to the elusive 50th gate. And that's why Har Nevoi can also be read as Nun Bo. 50 is in it. So how was Moshe Rabbeinu's last hour? Moshe Rabbeinu's last hour, he was able to achieve the highest level of truth. He crashed the 50th gate. What does David HaMelech ask for? 
in his pursuit of absolute truth. And now we can go back to the verses of Tilim, and now it all sings, it all makes so much sense. Rashi says, I want to know the true words of the Torah. The Mitzudah's David says, Your real intention, for there are levels of truth. As Shlomo HaMelech brilliantly alludes to it in the metaphor of apples of gold wrapped in filigree that is silver. You peel away one layer, and then you peel away another layer. And there are shivim ponim latayra, there are 70 facets to the Torah dimensions, and within those 70 there are 70, and there are layers upon layers upon layers, and one can continue to uncover, and David HaMelech yearned and sought to be able to uncover the ultimate essence of the words of God, the ultimate truth. And when did he find that? It was the last day of his life. The last hour of his life. This is what David HaMelech prayed for. The climax of David HaMelech's life was that he should be able to reach that truth when he was still terrestrially alive. And that was Tikra Vinasi, as the Alshech says, not only the prayer, not only the cries, not only the weeping, not only the yearning, but also the Torah should touch God, so to speak, come before you. Kidvarecho. David HaMelech should understand the Torah not as a mortal understands the Torah, but proverbially speaking, as God understands the Torah. Because the 50th gate represents a transcendence of human limitation. Now understanding it as God understands it. Just as God will re-engineer our hearts and transform us, David HaMelech asked to be transformed emotionally, and intellectually, to be absorbed into the highest level of truth. And perhaps this is what the Radak means when he says, I should still be able to act on it. I should still be in the world of what we call the terrestrial life. Because Moshe Rabbeinu wants to merit this and does merit it when he's still physically terrestrially alive. That's what David HaMelech sought as well. And that has an influence on the eternal life of the tzaddik as it goes on. That's Maimed Harsinai. What happened at Harsinai? The people saw the truth in such a profound way, they couldn't keep body and soul together. They expired. They had to be resuscitated multiple times until they said to Moses, you speak to him. This is not for us. Such is the truth that David HaMelech sought. It is said, that in the final hours of the Alter Rebbe's life, he asked his grandson and later successor, the Tzemach Tzedek, laying in his sickbed, gazing at the rafters, he asked the Tzemach Tzedek, what do you see? And the Tzemach Tzedek looked up and he said, I see trellises, rafters. And the Alter Rebbe said he didn't see the trellises anymore. He didn't see the rafters. He said, Now, I don't see physicality anymore. Although still physically, terrestrially alive, the Alter Rebbe was able to see the godly animating force within the physical to the point that it eclipsed the physical shell altogether. He had been granted the deepest true vision. Such as the yearning, the prayer of tzaddikim. Such as 
the nature of the ultimate truth. And if you will say, what does that have to do with me? Well, the Rebbe once pointed out that the 50th gate was concealed from Moshe so that he could have an opportunity to earn it on his own. Although the 50th gate can never be earned, per se, 49 can. And it's only after you transcend all 49 that you can be worthy of being gifted entrance into the 50th. And so, it was far more meaningful that Moshe Rabbeinu yearned, prayed, pined, hoped, and toiled to be able to achieve this climax in the very end of his life. The Rebbe, on another occasion, mentioned that according to our holy Torah teachings, every single Yid possesses a spark of Moshe Rabbeinu. The Gemara seems to say it. That's certainly the way the Alter Rebbe explains it in Tanya. And the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu was able to reach the 50th gate, the Rebbe says, is relevant to us because we all have a spark of Moshe and we all can yearn on some level to crash the 50th gate. And although Moshe Rabbeinu didn't get there until the last moments of his terrestrial life, the Rebbe maintained that Moshe has now paved the way and it is possible for every one of us to get glimpses of the truth. David HaMelech prayed for it. We should yearn and hope for it. And if our yearning is to experience the profoundest truths, and our yearning is to be able to have our hearts and our minds opened, then we can hopefully be granted the privilege of Geula Pratis, of Hashem releasing the Neshama, the soul that is at the core of our being, so that we should be able to set ourselves free of the shackles of the exilic reality in which we live and the Geula Pratis, bringing forth, even if only moments, glimpses of this profoundest truth, certainly accelerates the notion of universal redemption. And that, Amir Hashem, will bring us into the time of the greatest revelation of the truth, the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, will be Ameno, Amen. Thanks for joining. Please make sure you subscribe and hit notifications.